1844, James K. Polk was elected president of the United States. And when he was elected president, he needed a secretary. And his wife decided to take the job. She felt that she knew him best, and she would be able to serve the president best by being the secretary to the United States of America. And when she was a secretary, she was kind of perturbed and annoyed by a few things that were happening there in the White House. She was a strict Moravian. And the card playing or the dancing or the drinking that was taking place inside the halls of the White House bothered her. And she actually, with the help of the president, decided to eradicate that from the White House and, and make it no more. But there was one thing that bothered her probably the most, and that was when her husband walked into a room, maybe of foreign dignitaries, maybe of press, maybe just of his co-workers. Oftentimes, they would be engaged in conversations, and they would be doing things, and her husband would go overlooked, literally overlooked, because he was five foot six. And if you're five foot six, no offense, but that's relatively short for, uh, for the president. And they oftentimes would just not notice that he walked into the room. And so she decided to enlist the help of James Sanderson, who composed a piece of music. We know that music now as Hail to the Chief. Dun, 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 dun. We know that piece of music now because it was used then for the first time to introduce President Polk as he walked into the, into the room so that all eyes would be fastened on him, so that attention would be turned to him. And everyone would know that the president is here, let's focus on him. And since President Polk, that's been used to introduce every single president since, and I imagine that will probably continue. What we find in Daniel chapter 3 is an all hail to the chief moment. It is this moment that Nebuchadnezzar has been building for years, literally, to require attention in adoration, and all eyes to be pointed to him. And he has been building this moment for quite some time that he wants everyone to look at him, to admire him, and to have this all held to the chief moment. And what we'll find in Daniel chapter 3 is he spares no expense. He spends a lot of time, a lot of preparation. But at the end of it all, there are three Hebrew boys that steal the show. And instead of the attention being turned to Nebuchadnezzar and all the adoration being given to him, by the end of the chapter, that attention and that praise and that honor and that reverence and that adoration is offered to not really the three Hebrew boys, but God of the three Hebrew boys. And they end up stealing the show here in Daniel chapter 3. So we're going to walk through the first half of this book. I really wanted to cover the entire chapter today, but I just couldn't bring myself to do it because there's too much gold in the, in, in the whole chapter. We would have been here for an hour and a half or more. So we're going to do half of it today. We'll have first responders next week, and we'll see the back half uh, next week. So here's what we'll find. We're very simple, two points today. The first seven verses, we're going to find this, tested faith. We're going to find the faith of three Hebrew boys that is tested in a supreme way. And you may not realize how big the test is at first, but we're going to break this down. Look in verse number one of chapter three. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold whose height was three score cubits and the breadth thereof six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Okay, so what's that mean? So here's Nebuchadnezzar who makes this image of gold, whether it's pure gold or whether it's overlaid with gold, we do not know. 
uh, there is biblical precedent for something to be overlaid with gold, like the golden altar in, in uh, Leviticus was wood overlaid with gold, but they call it a golden altar. So whether it was overlaid or purely golden really is beside the point. Regardless, it's a lot of gold because it's 60 cubits tall. A cubit is a relatively inexact measurement. It's your elbow to the tip of your finger. So it's roughly a foot and a half. Uh, my cubit is a little bit bigger maybe than your cubit or smaller than yours or whatever it may be, but it's roughly a foot and a half. So this image, 60 of those, you're talking about 90 feet tall, and it's six cubits wide. So it's nine feet wide. Now that's a really skinny statue or image, whatever this is. I don't know if that's a french fry. That would fit the dimensions, french fry. I don't know if it's a giraffe. That would kind of fit the dimensions to me, maybe. Maybe Nebuchadnezzar just wanted to make it appear like he was on a diet, and he really wanted to thin himself out. I don't know. Maybe it was a Louisville Slugger bat. Maybe he made one of those. There actually is. I'm from uh, Louisville, Kentucky, which you say at Louisville, by the way. It's not Louisville. It's not Pastor Delaney and Danielle. They're from Kentucky as well. They're nodding their heads over there. It's Louisville, okay? It's not Louisville. It's not Louisville. You say, what's it have to do with the Bible? Nothing. But you, that's just how you say it. And if you have a problem with that, then, you know, just consider yens or something. That We all have our weird words that we say. But in Louisville... There is the Louisville Slugger Museum. It was constructed in 1996. I can remember. I was uh, 9 or 10 at that point. I guess I was 9. And it's this seemingly obscure building in the middle of downtown Louisville. It's five-story. It's brick. It looks like all the other buildings. There's nothing special about it except there is a 120-foot tall, the world's largest bat, Louisville Slugger bat that's propped up against the building and, and protruding way above the building. As you drive down the highway, you see this the handle of this ginormous bat, and you're like, what is that? And it sets apart the Louisville Slugger Museum. If, uh, if you ever want to go there, if you're a baseball fan, check it out. It'd be good. So maybe he made a Louisville Slugger bat. I don't know what the image is. All I know is it's skinny. Probably set on some sort of pedestal. The pedestal's probably not included in the dimensions. And this is in the plain of Dura, and it makes it very clear it, that's in the province of Babylon. So the plain of Dura, while it's kind of out, you know, a plain in the middle of nowhere. It's still within Babylon proper. It's still within the city limits. It's very close. Uh, you can actually, to this day, you can go six miles southeast of, uh, of the heart of where the Babylonian city was and all the, the hanging ga- gardens and the, the seventh wonder of the world. You can go to this day. There's a base. It's square. It's made of brick, and it's very large, six miles southeast of Babylon, that most people or scholars think the image set on that base that when they were conquered, they plundered the image, they took the gold away, but the base is still there to this day, six miles from, from Babylon. But this image, if you're 90 feet tall, made of gold, nine feet wide, this is something to behold. In, in that area, in the topography, you can probably see this image from 15 miles away. And this is of gold. Imagine, imagine this thing in the noonday sun, just shining and gleaming. And I don't know if you've seen... Uh, the Freedom Tower that's been erected in place of the World Trade Centers. Maybe you've seen a picture. Maybe you've been to Manhattan. My wife and I were there several months ago. I don't know what they made that building out of, but it just sparkles. It is, it's surrounded by skyscrapers, but it, it just has this pop and this bling to it that makes it stand out above all the other buildings inside of Manhattan. And I dare say that this image had that. There was this awe, this wonder. It just inspired you to look at this giant golden image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up for everyone to, to really to behold. 
And here's what he does in verse number two. Look at it with me. So he sets up this image in the plain of Dura. This is probably 10 years in the making. I mean, they've, they've spent a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of effort making this. Verse number two. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent to gather together the princes, the governors, the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Verse number three. Then the princes, the governors, the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces were gathered together unto the dedication of the, of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. So that's a lot of words. All to say this. King Nebuchadnezzar thinks this is a big deal. They're going to have a ribbon-cutting ceremony, and he's inviting pretty much everybody. If you're on the federal payroll, you're coming. You got the invite, and it's not really an invite like say yes or no RSVP. It's an invite to the king, so you just come. You just go because he said you're going to come and you're going to go. So he invites them all, and the Bible says they all come. And here they are standing before this giant image. We'll see in a moment that apparently there were so many people that Nebuchadnezzar could not even see them all. This is, there have to be thousands and thousands of people here to behold this ribbon-cutting ceremony for this image that Nebuchadnezzar has a lot of pride in. Probably this is rooted in Daniel chapter 2. If you remember the prophecy last week, Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, the image and the head of gold, that's you. You are the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar. And that probably inspired him to build this image for people to come. And look what happens in verse number 4. Then in herald cried aloud, to you it is commanded. That guy must have had some pipes to be able to cover everybody and for all of them to hear you. So here's what's commanded, O people, nations, and languages. Then at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king hath set up. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Now, think, think about this logically for a moment. You have this image, it's 90 by 9. You're making it out of gold. How do you do that? Well, you build a furnace, and you bring your gold in, raw gold, and you, and you melt it down. You take away the dross. You, make, you melt it, and you make it pliable, and you cast it. And this furnace is used to make this image, to heat the gold, to produce what you see before you. And here's what Nebuchadnezzar says. Everybody falls down. Everybody worships. And if you don't, that, that little furnace over there, it'll be a handy little torture tool. In you go and you shall die. Now by now, we've learned Nebuchadnezzar is a relatively violent man. This guy's M.O. is constantly like, you do this or I kill you. That's, that's just how he, that's how he operates. He's, he's not playing around. He's not to be trifled with. History tells us that Nebuchadnezzar, when the, when the armies would go into battle, that he would lead the armies. He was not an armchair quarterback. He would be the first into the fray. He would be the one. He was a warrior himself. You didn't mess with him. And Nebuchadnezzar says, do this or you die. And I want you to see a couple passages that we've covered so far in Daniel. Go to Daniel 1. I want you to see just kind of how violent and how sincere this is when he says you are going to be thrown into the furnace. He's not joking. This is not hyperbole. Look in chapter 1, verse number 10. This is when Daniel requests of his boss, the prince of the eunuchs, Ashpenaz, 
Daniel requests of his boss and he asks, hey, could I get a different diet? Could I get a different menu to eat from? And here's what the boss says in verse number 10. The prince of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king. Like Daniel, I'm scared of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar hath appointed your meat and drink. And why should he see your faces worse liking than the children of your sort? So look, Nebuchadnezzar set up the menu man. I'm scared of him. And if he looks at you and thinks something's off and questions this, then he says at the end of verse 10, then shall ye make me to endanger my head to the king. He says, literally, if this, if this doesn't go well, off with my head. Like, he will kill me. He's, he won't play around with this. So I'm sorry, Daniel. Love you, buddy. But no. <laughs> he gives him a no because he's scared for his life. Literally. Look in uh, chapter 2, verse 12. This is when the king has the dream. And he's frustrated. And he wants wise men to interpret it. And here's what he says in verse 12. For this cause, when they tell him, king, we can't do this, verse 12, the king was very angry and furious and commanded to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. And the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they sought Daniel and his fellows to be slain. So chapter 1, this guy's scared for his life. Chapter 2, all these guys are going to be killed because Nebuchadnezzar gives, gives the command. Chapter 3 says, if you don't do this, I'm going to kill you. You, you get this, this big picture of Nebuchadnezzar that he's not messing around. Like, if he's frustrated, he's going to take it out in violence. Killing people is how he relieves his frustration. That's his little stress ball, is just kill them. And suddenly he feels better about himself. So you don't mess with this guy. He is, he is a bad dude. Like, you don't mess with him. And he gives his command, and everybody knows this is not a joke. Like, he's not just going to burn my finger a little bit. This is going to happen. I'm going to die. And what happens in verse number 7? Therefore, at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and all kinds of music, all the people, the nations, the languages, fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, I'll say in a moment, we'll see that there are three that do not do this. But apparently the crowd's so big, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't even notice those three. But there are three that don't do this, but the Bible says that they, they all fall down and they do worship. Like, the big band plays... Frank Sinatra comes out. I'm just kidding. Frank Sinatra didn't really come out. Different kind of big band. Big band plays. Everybody falls down, and they worship. They do what the king says, and they, they give allegiance. They give respect. They give honor to, to this image. And here we find, I do want to stop for just a moment, if you'll allow me two minutes, to give you kind of a side note here. I don't know if you ever ask questions of the Bible. I I tend to do that, and I used to be scared to do that. And this is a relatively new revelation for me in my own personal life, if I can just talk personally for a moment. Probably six or seven years ago, I heard a preacher stand up and say, the Bible's not scared of your questions. And that one, that one sentence impacted me in a big way because the, I used to have questions. I used to be kind of scared to ask the Bible my questions. And what if, what if I don't get what I think it should be? Or what if my beliefs have to change? Or what if there's something that, that I didn't know was supposed to be that? So I learned that, and now I've, I've asked enough questions of the Bible that uh, I'm no longer scared to do that. And I've learned that the Bible holds water, and it can handle our questions as humans. It's from God. It is perfect. It is infallible. But a question that I ask myself, which is a, a random question, maybe you wouldn't ask yourself, is why did Daniel take like 350 words to describe what could be said in 50? He just made it difficult for me as a preacher to like read off 
counselors, judges, sheriffs, da 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 da. And then he lists them again. And then he lists the the music and the and the psalter and the sackbut and the dulcimer and da. And then he lists them. That seems really wordy to me. That seems like maybe that shouldn't be there. Maybe we could have just condensed that. You know, we could have fine-tuned that passage of Scripture there a little bit. But here's what we find. And this is, this is a side note, but I think it's important. Critics of the Bible don't know what to do with Daniel other than one thing. When you come to Daniel and you find Daniel chapter 2 where Daniel in like 575 B.C. or, or even maybe later than that, 600 B.C., says, here's how world history is going to go. Like, let me predict the kingdoms of the world. When you come to Daniel 7, 8, 9, 10, and all these prophecies that Daniel lays out, and he predicts, again, the world kingdoms and the metals they're using. He, he predicts Antiochus Epiphanes and exactly what, like, this king will do. He predicts all this stuff. Critics of the Bible don't know what to do with that. How can you criticize the Bible when a guy somehow predicted world history 500 years before world history happened? Now, that's, that's a big credit to God, right? Because man can't do that. Man can't produce that. That's only God. That's supernatural. But what they'll do, and this is their only, this is their only reaction, this is the only choice they have, is to say, you know what? Daniel didn't really write that. This was not written by a guy named Daniel who lived in the kingdom of Babylon in 550 to 600 B.C. This was actually written by someone in 50 B.C. after world history has unfolded. And he's posing as Daniel. And he's trying to make it seem like he knew, like he had a prophecy, like this is supernatural. But really, it's not. This is just somebody looking in the rearview mirror and writing about what already happened and trying to, trying to hoodwink us. That's what critics say. And the point of all this is, is exactly this. Those words in Daniel where he lists sheriffs, governors, counselors, all those words where he lists the, the psaltery and the sackbut and the dulcimer and all those instruments, with, without getting too far into the weeds... If you go to the languages, this is written in Aramaic, and there's also uh, there's words that are used that are Persian words and Greek words. The long story short of it is this. When you look at those words, it provides a very clear-cut picture that the actual words penned are 6th century words. They are words that give tremendous credibility in a very scholarly, deep way that we don't think about a lot, honestly, but in a very deep way gives tremendous credibility that no... This was not written as a forgery in 50 B.C. from the rearview mirror. This was written by a man named Daniel, like the text says, in 550 to 600 B.C., who lived in Babylon and was viewing world history through the windshield because God did it, and God's supernatural. So the point is this. When you come to the Bible and you come to, and you think, man, why are those there? That seems, that seems obscure. It, it seems like maybe I could do it. Let's just get to the fire furnace part, you know. Shoo, shoo. Let's get through all these, all these guys. Let's get through all these instruments. Let's just get to the, to the good stuff, you know, the Bible story stuff. Let's get to what we tell our kids. The, all that's important, and all that's there for a reason. And the Holy Spirit knew what he was doing when he had Daniel pin them, and even the words that he used when he pinned them. So that's a bit of a sidebar, and I appreciate you giving me your attention for it. The point is this. They have a command to obey the king, and most everybody does. And we, we have, in our modern day and age, we have commands that we're to obey, and the Bible tells us to. Romans 13 is very clear. That the powers that be ordained are ordained of God, and we are to obey them. Sometimes, I don't really like that all the time. Sometimes that's, you know, that's, that's a bunch of rotten apples. You know, we're supposed to pay our taxes. The Bible literally tells us that we're supposed to pay our taxes and to render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Sometimes I wish I didn't have to do that. 
I don't know about you, taxes aren't exactly fun. We, we have laws that come to us, and we're going to vote here in, in a few months. And our society is set up where you go to the voting booth, you wait in line, you show your ID, then you go vote. As a millennial, I kind of wish that they would just create online voting and I didn't have to take half my day to drive to some, you know, uh, VFW post to go show in person and, oh, your driver's license expired. All the hassle that that is. But that's, that's what our government set up. So, we, okay, we do it. Uh, how many, raise of hands, how many hunter men or hunter women, fishermen, fisherwomen, how many hunters and fishers do we have in the room? A good, a good deal, a big chunk of the room. We have to get fisher uh, permits and hunting permits to go hunt and fish. I wish that wasn't the case. Wouldn't it be nice if we could just hunt and fish like we, what we wanted, like it was the pioneer days, and if a deer walked through the backyard, we could have some meat for the season, you know? That would be pretty nice. It would be like the Oregon Trail, if you ever played that computer game in the 70s or 80s, where you could just shoot whatever you wanted on your way to Oregon. Did anyone play Oregon Trail? Oh, if you, you know what I'm talking about. Okay. I always killed like 2,000 pounds more buffalo than my wagon could handle because I just wanted to run around and shoot the buffalo. So Oregon Trail was a fun game, although my family always died. Like they all, they got some disease and they died all the way to, to Oregon. So if you've never played it, check it out. It's a great video game. Uh, I'll have to say this. We have commands. The, the, the laws of the land. We're instructed to obey those laws of the land, except for when they contradict the law of God. Except for when it stands in dire opposition to what the Word of God clearly spells out. And in this instance, for these three Hebrew boys, by now they're no longer boys, they're men, for these Hebrew men, this goes in direct opposition to what the law of God says. In Exodus 20, the passage where we find the Ten Commandments, that is prefaced with this passage, Exodus 20, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And it gets very specific and is like exactly what Daniel chapter 3 is. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or the likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that is earth beneath. And Nebuchadnezzar just did this. And then it says this, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. And these three Hebrew boys know this command. They know the Torah says this. They know what Nebuchadnezzar is asking is in direct opposition to what God has commanded. Like Peter in, in Acts 5, we, we ought to obey God rather than man. And here they are with a moment where their faith is going to be tested. And tested in a big way. You say, how is, how is their faith really tested that big. Think about this. They have a direct command from their boss who, oh, by the way, is the boss of the world, like he is the boss. They have a direct command to do this. They also have a threat of death from someone who apparently finds satisfaction in killing people if they don't do this. And it seems like Nebuchadnezzar would delight in killing them. Think of the peer pressure. Everybody's there. Like literally, they could write home to mom and dad and say, mom, dad, everybody was doing it. Because everybody is doing it. All of their colleagues, all of the people they rule with, all of the governors, the people that they rub shoulders with in the social circles, all of them are there. All of them are compliant. Think of the inordinate amount of peer pressure that would create on these men to comply and to dip the sails and to, and to give in and not, not exhibit faith. They're separated from their families. They're isolated in this foreign land. Of course, this foreign land has corrupt influences. They're not, this is not a uh, Christ-centered, Bible-centered society. 
And with all that, they pass the test. Their faith is tested in a way that I dare say my faith has never been tested. I dare say your faith has never been tested to that magnitude. But theirs is. And we, we do well to look at this and to be inspired by this and to ask ourselves, what's our excuse for not standing? What, what, is, what logical excuse can we come up with that we can choose to not have faith, to be tested and not come out as true when these young men went through this? Well, you don't know how tough it is around the water cooler at work. There's like, there's like four guys there. And when they tell a joke, you know, what am I supposed to do? Not laugh? I mean, they'll think I'm some sort of religious zealot. Really? Like that's, that's, that's the test that, that's going to make us lose our faith and do something that goes against what we know, God said. Well, I mean, the whole team is going to Coach's house, like all 12 of the 12-year-olds, and they're watching the rated R movie. I mean, I can't, I can't let my kid miss out on that. All the other kids will make fun of him because they didn't go to Coach's house. Well, in America... America, we're, we're losing it. We're no longer Christian any longer. And, and there may be some truth to that. We are losing our biblical foundation. We are in, becoming inherently less Christian. But what's new? Compare that to, to the society these boys live in. You think Babylon loves Jesus? Compare that to the first century Rome where the disciples and the apostles turned the world upside down for Christ in first century Rome. You think Rome loved the Bible? You think Corinth, Ephesus, that these were pillars of a moral society? No. Truth be told, we have it easy. We have it real easy. And I understand things are changing. I understand it's becoming tougher. But we, we have nothing compared to this. Well I, well, I just don't have the religious background that so-and-so had. I'm newly saved. Or, well, I mean, our sex craves society. Sex is pervasive. It's everywhere. I just can't help but to... Stop. What is our excuse? These men have a test that is much tougher than we probably will ever find ourselves in in our lifetime. I don't care what happens in the next 20 or 30 years inside of America. We will probably never find ourselves in that tough of a test. But they stand. And they are, they are tested. It's not just a tested faith. What we find is that they have a tenacious faith. That these young men have some grit. They have some resolve. They have some determination about them that they're going to stand. Look what happens. Look in verse number 8. Wherefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews. Now, don't miss Chaldeans and Jews. These Chaldeans are of the Babylonian bloodline. They're not in Babylon because they're an immigrant. They're not in Babylon because they are captives or they're slaves. They're in Babylon because they're Babylonians. And they come and they accuse the Jews who are the imports, who are the young men that were brought in as subjects. So they come to accuse the Jews, and they spake, verse 9, to the king Nebuchadnezzar and said, O king, live forever. So the, the normal greeting, long live the king. O king, live forever. Verse 10, thou, O king, hast made a decree that every man that shall hear the sound and hear the, the words again, the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sap, but the psaltery, the dulcimer, and all kinds of music, 
shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth, that he should be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Now, if I was Nebuchadnezzar, I would have been annoyed right then. I would be like, yeah, that was 60 seconds ago, guys. I remember what I said. You know, I want to kill you because I'm frustrated now. But for whatever reason, they remind the king, here's what you said. Remember, this is what you said. Verse number 12, they're going to accuse the Jews. Now, there are certain Jews, and this verse is ripe almost with sarcasm and almost in an accusatory way. Listen to it. There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. He Nebuchadnezzar. Remember chapter 2? That Daniel guy, you know, he had that lucky guess. He guessed the dream. He guessed the interpretation. And you were like, oh, Daniel, you're great. Yeah, I'm going to promote you. And Daniel said, what was the last verse of chapter 2? Daniel requested of the king, would you, would you promote Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Would you promote my three buddies? And apparently the king said yes. Because these Babylonians, these Chaldeans are coming and saying, King, remember, remember those three Jews that you put over the province of Babylon? Like you didn't, you didn't ship them off to Timbuktu to rule the kingdom in some obscure place. You put them over my neighborhood. You, you gave them control over the capital city, and they're not, even, they're not even of our bloodline. You took the subjects, you took the slaves, and made them our boss. Remember that? And it's almost ripe with, King, don't you think you made a mistake here? Because look, look in the middle of verse 12. Those three guys, those Jews, the ones that you set up, the ones that you probably gave too much leeway to, the ones that you made our bosses, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, have not regarded thee. They disrespected you. They, you gave them so much rope, and they're running away with it. They don't even appreciate the, the position you've given them. They don't appreciate the power that you've given them. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. They have, and you'll look at verse number 13. They apparently strike a chord with the king. What they said and how they said it sets him off. In verse number 13, then Nebuchadnezzar in his rage and fury. So what's new? He gets ticked a lot. But in rage and fury commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then they brought these men before the king. Now we're going to see in a moment, I firmly believe that Nebuchadnezzar does remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He knows those names. They're not just any guy. He, he knows who these men are. And I think if it was anyone else, he would just say, chuck them in the furnace. Yeah, do away with them. But he's mad and he's upset because they've disrespected him. Because they've disobeyed the command. And he says, get them up here. Now imagine the tension. You just had this big, you know, dun, 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 moment where everyone falls down. And all of a sudden these, these Chaldeans come up. King, there's these three guys. Remember them? They're not doing it. And he stops the show and says, get them up here. Imagine the tension that is across the plain that day. And here's what happens in verse number 14. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true? He's, he's in disbelief. He's literally kind of shell-shocked at this. Like, guys, I have given you a good job and a good salary. Like, you are ruling the capital city, guys. You're in the province of Babylon proper. Is this true? Like, really? You're not going to fall down? You're not going to worship? You're not going to do this? Like, he's, he, he apparently doesn't completely believe the accusation from the Chaldeans. So he says, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, 
Do not ye serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up. <clears throat> Verse number 15. <clears throat> now if ye be ready, that at what time ye hear the sound, and here they are again, the cornet, flute, harp, sat, butt, psalter, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye, fall down, ye fall down and worship the image that I have made well. Look, if you'll do that, good. But if ye worship not, ye shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And don't miss this phrase. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Nebuchadnezzar says, guys, come up here. You got, I, I'm almost in disbelief. Is this true? Like, let's, let's do this again. I want to see this for myself. I'm going to play the music. And if you fall down, good, great, awesome. You know, same song, second verse. Let's do this again. But if not, I'm telling you, you're dying. You are going in the furnace and tell me, who's your God that's going to deliver you out of my hand? Put me, you won't serve my gods, put me in a cage match with your God. Stack up Nebuchadnezzar against your God and see who wins. Try me. Roll the dice with that one. See how it turns out for you. I'm Nebuchadnezzar, you see the pride? Nebuchadnezzar is willing to say, I will put my hand against your God and we'll see who wins. And he, there is a moment that obviously is extremely tense. Obviously this moment is a big moment for everyone in attendance as well as Nebuchadnezzar. Imagine you give three men a second chance and what if they don't take it? The disrespect, the slap in the face that would be to the thousands of rulers who are in attendance. And here's what they say. You see, you see, unbelievable, these are the three verses that we love to preach on. You see faith that is utterly tenacious. Verse 16, <clears throat> Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we're not careful to answer thee in this matter. King, we don't got to think about this one. We don't got to pray about this one. We don't need to have a team huddle. We know what we're going to say, and here it is. There's no anxiety in our hearts about this. We already know what we're going to tell you. Don't even bother to play the music. Look at verse 17. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. So he said two threats. You're going in the furnace and my hand against your God. And they said our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. They said, you want to you wanna go, go rounds with Jehovah? All right, we'll do that. We'll, we'll put you in the cage against God. You, th you think you're big. You think you're strong. You think that your hand's mighty. You think that you're in control of this situation right now? Let's see. Let's roll the dice. Let's, all the cards on the table, all in. Let's go right now, and let's see if God can't deliver us from, from you. Because you know who our God is? Remember our God? Remember, remember 10 years ago? Remember 15 years ago, King? You had that dream, you were all scared in your bedroom, you were terrified, you were all afraid, and then you couldn't figure out what it was, and then God, our God, said, here's what it is, and here's what's going to happen, and I'm in control of history. And remember 15 years ago that you were amazed by that God. You stood back, you were flabbergasted, you were floored by the might and the power and the strength of that God, and that is our God. That's who you are about to go rounds with. Verse 18. They say all that, but then they say this, and I love it. But if not, look, if he doesn't deliver us from the fire, fiery furnace, if he doesn't deliver us from, from your hand and you end up killing us, but if not, 
Be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image with which thou hast set up. Look at that faith. It's almost, literally, it's almost faith by reflex. It's like they didn't have to think about it. They apparently, people were a little surprised at this. The person had to announce, here's what you're going to do. Not everyone knew what to do in, before they got there. And these men, in the moment, have this faith in this character by reflex. And apparently, they have a supremely high view of God who's in control of all situations. And that supremely high view of God is producing tenacious faith. That their faith that they're exhibiting, their willingness to quote-unquote roll the dice, their willingness to pit God against King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the world, is rooted in this view of God. You could say it this way. They have faith in a great God, and in turn that's producing great faith in God because they view him. And their obedience was not predicated on convenience. It was not predicated on a happy ending. It was not predicated upon a healthy ending, even for their own health. They are serving no matter what. This is a non-negotiable. They know that God is capable, and they're putting their trust in him. And here's what we find in verse 16, 17, and 18. You find that there's courage in their speech. Verse 16, there's courage in their speech. They're not careful to answer the king in this matter. And there's commitment in their service. Verse 18, that we will not serve your gods no matter what, and we're not going to bow down. Courage in speech and commitment in service because of a confidence in their Savior. Verse 17, because of a confidence in their God, that our God is able and our God is capable and our God is bigger than your hand, O king, and that is produced in them. And what you will find is that the same will happen to you. When you begin to have a big view of God and who he is and how grand he is and what he can do and how in control he is, when you begin to see even Jesus in the proper light and who Jesus is, that will produce a courage in your words and in your actions, in your speech and in your service, it's all of a sudden going to give you courage and commitment that you did not know previously. That all of a sudden, the song says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful faith, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. You'll find that that's true. That all of a sudden, when you begin to view God properly and you begin to sink your teeth into who he is and anchor your soul to him, and you begin to view Jesus and what he's done for you, that that naturally produces the faith and the speech and the service and the commitment that you need. And this faith was not something that these men just conjured up inside of themselves. It's not something that they were sprinkled with some magic pixie dust or they were just born with more faith in their heart. They have a proper view of God and it is producing faith inside of their lives. And the same thing happens to you. When you have confidence in your Savior, courage in your speech and commitment and service are byproducts. They happen naturally. Faith happens naturally. You say, prove it. I mean, it happened for those boys, but prove it for me. Thank you for asking me to prove it. I will. Hebrews 11. You don't have to, you don't have to hold your place in Daniel. Go to Hebrews 11. I want you to see this passage of Scripture, which weighs in so heavily on our lives. And truth be told, this is where the rubber meets the road for us. Hebrews 11, as you turn, Hebrews 11 is known for being the hall of faith. That's what we've nicknamed it, the hall of faith. And it's a, it's a passage where faith is described 
in the front portion of the, of the chapter. And then there's all these stories and all these lists of Enoch had great faith, and here's what happened. And Moses had great faith, and here's what happened. And that, it goes down through this passage. I want to select out a couple of these, and I, I, I don't want you to miss what Hebrew says about faith and how that is produced in our lives. Look in verse number 24. This is the section on Moses. Moses has the longest passage in the hall of faith. But look in, in verse number 24 of Hebrews 11. By faith. So Moses had faith. Here's what he's about to do. How did Moses do this? When Moses was come to years, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. So Moses chose the tough road instead of the pleasures of sin. How did Moses do this? How did he find the faith in his heart to do this? It tells us, esteeming the reproach of Christ. So somehow Moses had a view of Christ, even in the Old Testament, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Moses had a proper view of Christ, and it expounds on it further. Look at it here. For he had respect unto the recompense of reward, by faith, Moses forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses had a proper view of God, and in turn, it eradicated his fear of Pharaoh and what man would do. You see the same thing in, in Daniel 2 with these, with these Hebrew boys. Their proper view of God eradicates the fear of the fiery furnace in Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Look down in verse number 32. <clears throat> You're going to find that the author of Hebrews very briefly alludes to Daniel and the three Hebrew boys. Look at verse 32. And what shall I more say? So he comes to the end of this list of people. For the time would fail me to tell of, and he says, look, I don't have enough time to write about all these people. Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David also and Samuel and of the prophets, colon. So he's going to list some of these prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms. Daniel and his friends certainly did that. They ruled the kingdoms. Because of this, they wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions. The story that Daniel's known for, Daniel and the lions then, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. He's alluding to Daniel chapter 2, the edge of the sword, Daniel chapter 3, the, the fiery furnace, then the mouth of lions, and uh, Daniel chapter 5. Out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in flight, and turned to flight the armies of heaven. Look at verse number 12, or chapter 12, verse 1. Three more verses, and don't miss this. Now, I know we have a chapter division. I, I know that we, as men, we broke it up and we said, here's a chapter division. Now, God didn't put a chapter division in the Bible. Uh, we, we created that as men, and that's okay. It helps us to know where we are. But the author of Hebrews continues this flowing thought in chapter 12, and he says this, wherefore. So how does this really apply to us? What does this mean for us? Moses, Daniel, Gideon, the, the three Hebrew boys, the fiery furnace. Wherefore. Seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. So as we look around and we see these men who exhibited great faith, let us, what should we do? Lay aside every weight and the sin which just so easily beset us. And we talk about that a lot. And run with patience the race that is set before us, comma, looking unto Jesus. And who is Jesus? He is the author and the finisher of our faith. Jesus starts our faith and Jesus ends our faith and anywhere in between Jesus is that faith. Continue reading the verse here. Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Last verse. For consider him. Who's him? Jesus. 
who endured such contradiction of sinners, lest ye be wearied and you faint in your minds. The author of Hebrews says, he said, look, look at Moses did it. Moses, he esteemed the reproach of Christ. Moses saw him who was invisible. Look what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to look at Jesus. He starts our faith. He ends our faith. We should consider him lest we be weird and faint in our own minds when our faith tank is on empty. How do you fill that up? How do you get your faith tank to full? How do you get more? Do we pray for you? Do we sprinkle water on you? Do we lay hands on you? Do you do, what do you do? The Bible says in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, you do that by looking to Jesus. You do that by considering him, just like Moses did it, just like the prophets did it, that our faith, where the rubber meets the road, is that we have to see a great God, specifically Jesus Christ, and have a high view of him and lift him up and dwell on him and meditate on him and understand him and think about what he's done in our lives. And that produces faith. That yields faith. That gives us the faith that these three Hebrew boys had in Hebrews or in in Daniel chapter 3. How am I going to get the faith to make it through this trial? How am I going to get the faith to take that next step that God's telling me, but I'm scared to my wit's end? How am I going to get the faith to stand? How am I going to get the faith to give the gospel to my neighbors? Because truth be told, that just scares me to do. How do you do that? You rediscover Christ. You find him. You look at him. You dwell on him. You meditate on him. You consider him. You find that in Daniel chapter 3, that these young men, they have courage in their speech. They have commitment in their, in their service because there's a confidence in their Savior. Because of their confidence in their God. And, and the simpler way to say that is that they have faith in a great God and it yields, it produces great faith in God. That this was just not a magical moment. This was rooted in their theology. I don't know if any of you watch the Discovery Channel or the Nature Channel ever. Uh, I very rarely do. Frankly, I watch very little TV in general. But occasionally I'll watch the Discovery Channel for whatever reason. And if you watch the Discovery Channel, you'll find that many times they, they dwell on, like, Africa and the plains of Africa. And anytime you get into that and you start to see these animals, they, they oftentimes show the Impala. And not, like, the, the car, the Chevy car, but, like, the animal, the little deer-like creature. And the Impala is often, more often than not, being pursued by a larger predator. And a crocodile is eating one or a lion's trying to catch one and, and that sort of stuff. And, and poor Impalas. But the impala is, is an amazing animal. It can jump up to 10 feet high, and it can bound up to 30 feet in length. Now those are, for a little, for a little animal, those, that's an amazing ability to jump and to stride that high and that far. But if you go to a zoo where an impala is on display, and Pittsburgh Zoo doesn't have one. They have some that are kind of like an impala, but not really. But um, if you go to a zoo that has one, you'll find that impalas are enclosed in a fence that's most often no more than three feet high. And they can walk right up to the fence. They could, uh, with no effort, li I mean little to no effort, could jump right over that fence. But you can enclose an impala in a zoo with a three-foot fence or in your backyard if you happen to get one as a pet because an impala will not jump where he cannot see. If the impala cannot see where he will land, he won't jump. And if you can just get a fence high enough to cut off his eyesight to be able to see where he or she is going to land, then you run no risk 
of them taking the faith to leap. Now, in our lives, we don't need faith to see where we're going to land. Honestly, if we could see where we're going to land, it wouldn't be faith. Faith necessitates that we can't see where we land. But we do, we have to be able to see Jesus. You have to be able to focus on Jesus Christ and what he has done for us in the moment of faith he's brought you to, how he saved you from your sin, what he did in the Gospels. You have to be able to see him in order to jump. You don't have to see where you're going to land. But in order to truly have faith that is rooted in and that is produced by Jesus Christ. And when you have a clear view of him, faith is a byproduct. When you see him, faith is inevitable. And that faith will lead you to courage in your speech. You'll, you'll suddenly begin telling people about Jesus and you, you weren't planning on it. You just are telling people about Jesus. You'll suddenly be able to stand and do the right thing and you weren't necessarily planning on it. It was, it was so much more difficult for me six months ago with that sin. I was really struggling, but now it seems like the, the chains are falling off. How's that possible? Because you see Jesus. Because you meditate on him. Because you look at him. Because you consider him. If, if that's you today and, you, and yourself, you find yourself that your faith tank is a little empty. You're struggling to find your voice for the Lord. You're struggling to share your faith as you know you should. You are dipping the sails a little bit. It's, it's tough to stand in this situation or that situation. I encourage you. I implore you. Look at Jesus. Get in the Gospels. Read about him. See what he did. See what he said. Meditate on him. Meditate on what he's done for you and, and what he's done in your life. And when you do that, when you get a clear picture of who he is, I guarantee you, on the authority of God's word and on the testimony of the three Hebrew boys, when you do that, great faith follows. When you have a view and faith in a great God, then in turn, you will have a great faith in God.